Abby, thank you so much for a powerful song. Beautifully done. Really just reminds us this morning on this Monday that we have everything to be joyful. We have every reason to be happy with all the responsibilities you are carrying, I'm carrying. It's great to know that Jesus gave himself for me. That the gospel uh, has been received in my life. Are you thankful for that? If you're thankful you're saved, say amen. amen. If you're not saved, you need to get saved. If that song didn't minister to your heart this morning, there's probably something wrong. I'm so blessed by uh, the music ministry of our students this past weekend was just phenomenal to see all of you students that were involved in the festival and also uh, the Budal's funeral. It was just inspiring to see you ministering in that way. Thank you. Thank you so much for your sacrifice and your servant spirit. I, too, want to say how thrilled I was on uh, Saturday to see such a great crowd at the game. That was incredible spirit, great energy. Love to see all the students supporting our students. That, that's phenomenal. Thank you to all of our athletes that are working hard. And I know you've had a busy weekend, and you're probably feeling a little tired this morning. How many of you feel a little tired this morning, all right? Lots of hands being lifted. It was a busy weekend, and that's the way ministry is. That's the way being a servant is, and I, I hope that uh, you'll get some rest, keep working hard, and keep ministering to one another. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As we enter back into the book of 1 Thessalonians, a reminder that we are looking at this theme, strengthened in hope, and specifically the hope that Jesus is coming again. We ended chapter 3 with a strong statement about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just glance back to verse 13 again of chapter 3. And it says, to the end that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate culmination, when Jesus returns, we will be glorified. Our sanctification, the sanctification process will, uh, will be finalized as we go to be with God. And yet... While we're here, the entire goal is that we would be holy, we would be sanctified, that because we are justified, because he gave himself for us, that we would be growing and abounding in sanctification and holiness. So Paul has just completed chapter 3, the, the, the section of the book, which is the declaration of, of who we are in Christ, and really the relationship, not only that we have with Christ, but the relationship we have with one another. And as Paul does in many of his epistles, he spends a good section on the theology and the doctrine and the stability of our lives. And then often he transitions quickly to the exhortation, the commands, the principles. How ought we to live and I think in the context of 1 Thessalonians, how ought we to live as we're waiting for this hope? As we're waiting for the coming of the Lord, how ought we to live? So both of the sections, the declaration section and the exhortation section, chapter 4 and 5, both of them have theological themes of sanctification and holiness as we are waiting for the coming of the Lord. 
And Paul jumps immediately into a section here in verses 1 through 8 that are very appropriate for us. Notice verse 1 and verse 2. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk to please God, so you would abound more and more. Again, there's that progressive growth and sanctification. For you know, verse 2 says, for you know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. So Paul is imploring and exhorting us as an authoritative representative of Jesus Christ. He is saying, you already know these things. I've said these things to you before. You should know these principles. You should know these commands. I've given you those through preaching. I've given you those through my example. I've sent Timothy to you. You should know these things, but these are reminders to you. And he starts this section with this strong urging, the word beseech and the word exhort, the strong urging. And so I have the opportunity today to strongly encourage you and exhort you to pay close attention to the specific details that he's about to share with us concerning a very important cultural issue that not only they were facing, but we are facing as well. Starting in verse 3 through verse 5, it is obvious that the theme of this text is moral, sexual purity. Moral purity. The key command in this text is abstain from fornication. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. So as we wait for the coming of the Lord, there must be a radical commitment to moral purity. As we await the coming of the Lord, there is a radical commitment to moral purity. Abstain from fornication. Literally, this idea is it's in the middle voice in the language, which means you yourself refrain from this. You yourself restrain yourself. You yourself refuse this. It is your choice. It is your commitment, my commitment. And because of the hope we have in Christ, because of the future revelation of Jesus Christ, the coming of the Lord, we should have a radical commitment to moral purity. You know, sometimes I look at our world and I think to myself, has it ever been this bad? And I want to say to you, as you study a little bit about the Greek culture and even the time of the writing of the book of Thessalonians, it was really bad, really sensual, lots of immorality. There was, it was, there was an expectation as you gave yourself to the religious rites that there was an expectation that you would actually commit yourself to immorality. There was an expectation in the culture of, of all kinds of adultery and all kinds of premarital uh, sexual relationships, all kinds of even homosexuality and even uh, more despicable things than that were going on in the very time period that, that these people were living. And such is the case for us today, right? It's obvious. It's all around us. But we, as God's people, as pilgrims waiting for the coming of the Lord, must have a radical commitment to moral purity. He says, abstain from fornication. 
I'm sure most of you know that the term that is used here often is specified for premarital sexual activity, but in in this context, it is a reference to the entirety of any type of sexual sin outside the biblically described creative order of marriage. Unless we are confused about this, the scripture says that a man should leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, and clearly from the beginning of time, from the creative order, God said the only possible appropriate sexual relationship would be one man and one woman inside the proper bounds of marriage, and anything Anything mentally, anything emotionally, anything physically outside of that type of sensual or that type of relationship in marriage, anything would be labeled as fornication. Of course, you know this is the Greek word pornea from which we get the word pornography. So pornography would be included in this uh, type of, of sin. And he's commanding us by the word of the Lord, with the authoritative apostolic teaching, abstain from fornication. So we want to talk about this this morning so that we as God's people, as we await the coming of the Lord, make sure that we choose to have a radical commitment. And you know what? Maybe there's some things that need to be done in your life to become more radical about this type of moral purity. This was, this was taught to the people of God in the New Testament. Over and over there were commands like 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Ephesians 5, verse 5, for this you know that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Galatians 5, verse 24, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Colossians 3, verse 5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication and uncleanness and inordinate affection. 1 Peter 2, verse 11, Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. And Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, Flee also youthful lusts. So we want to talk about this by looking at three aspects of this command, three aspects of the purity principle, as I will call it this morning. If we are going to have a radical commitment to this, we need to understand these three aspects. First of all, we're going to look at the motivation. I think it's important that we are motivated properly to obey this command, and we should be obeying the command, the the purity principle, the purity command. Number two, we're going to look at the essence of the command. What are the particular expectations from this text that have very practical ramifications for us today? And then we're going to look at number three, the implications of this command, the gravity of it, the significance of it. And though it may seem obvious, there are some things in this text that help us to see how how serious it is that we have a radical commitment to this, to moral purity. All right, let's notice, first of all, the motivation. What is the motivation for obedience to the purity principle? In other words, we're answering this question. Why should I know and obey this command? to abstain from fornication, to, to, to have a commitment to moral purity. Why should I do that? I think there really are two 
motivations, spiritual motivations given to us in this text. Notice verse 3, it says, for this is the will of God. I think the first motivation is obviously God's will. It is God's will. In other words, your relationship with God is why you have this commitment. It's like Joseph said, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? This is the primary reason and the primary motivation and maybe the reason why so many even Christians are involved in fornication, sensual and sexual sins, is because their relationship with God is not what it ought to be. And really the relationship with God is not the priority in their life. So you notice in verse 1, it says that this is how we please God. You notice in verse 2, this is the will of God. Notice in verses 1 and 2, it says it is by the Lord Jesus. And in verse 7, we haven't read it yet, but it says, for God has called us to this. And this is why we have references like Romans 8, verse 8. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. When you're in the flesh, when you're giving into the flesh, when you're giving into sensual, impure things, you are not pleasing God. You are out of God's will. It is the will of God. Your spiritual growth depends on this radical commitment to moral purity. This is the will of God. Your sanctification that you should abstain from fornication so the spirit of of each of us should be this psalm 40 verse 8 i delight to do thy will i delight to do thy will psalm 143 verse 10 teach me god to do thy will we need to be proving what is acceptable to the Lord. And this is, this is the foundation. This is the building block of our commitment to moral purity. It's the fact that we love God. We love him with all of our heart. It's, it's our relationship with God. So our relationship with God and, and doing the will of God is the primary motivation for this obedience. We, we are not seeking to be morally pure. So People recognize it. People see it. For if we seek to please men, we are not the servants of Christ. We are not doing this to please people. We are doing this to please God. A radical commitment so that God's will is obeyed. There's a second reason, uh, a second motivation for our moral purity, this commitment to moral purity. And I think it is clear in the text, over and over he mentions this, the second motivation is the fact that we need to be sanctified. In other words, we can say it this way. The first motivation is our relationship with God. The second motivation is the goal of our Christian experience. In other words, we need to be like Christ. We want to be motivated by the, the theology of sanctification, the growth in grace, the, the step-by-step process that God is doing in our life. He mentions this over and over. In verse 1, he says, this is how you ought to walk. These are terms that are used in the sanctification text all throughout the Scripture. Verse 3, it says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Our sanctification, being like Jesus, ought to motivate us to be pure and commit ourselves to this. Verse 4, it tells us that we ought to do this in sanctification and in honor. And then again, verse 7, God has called us to holiness. And so this is the second 
second motivation is the fact that we want to be like Jesus. And if you don't want to be like Jesus, you probably don't know him. Because the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be what? Conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So if there is no commitment to moral purity, then there's no commitment to being like Christ, and there's little relationship with God, which may mean you need to examine yourself to see if you're even in the faith. Because those of us that are saved are motivated by the will of God and our sanctification. This is what should be the foundation and the motivation for our radical commitment. As we wait for the coming of the Lord, we must have a radical commitment to moral purity. So be motivated by God's will and your own growth to be more like Jesus Christ. All right, so we've seen the motivation, the motivation for this purity principle. Number two, let's notice the essence. The essence. What are the particular details, the essence of obedience to this purity principle? What specifically do we need to do? What do we need to consider in order to obey this purity command? And I think that I'd like to give you four exhortations, four principles out of this text starting in verse 3 it says abstain from fornication I know this is obvious but principle number one is the essence of this command is we must be willing to say no to our flesh in this area you must say no the word abstain means to say no it's one of the strongest words that could be given and it's obvious that nobody has this radical commitment if they keep saying yes to their flesh, if they keep saying yes to give in. You must have a commitment to say no. And the scripture tells us in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not even have the ability to say no apart from the armor of God. And specifically the armor of God testifying to our relationship with God and his spirit and his word. Of course, we know the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit. And he says that you may be able to stand. You are not able to stand. You are not able to say no without the presence of God and the spirit of God and the word of God working in your heart. But we do need to say no. Abstain. You need to say no. Notice verse 4. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. This is probably the most debated part of this section of scripture. And there are lots of ideas about what this, what this phrase means, particularly possessing your vessel. Some have articulated and argued that the word vessel may refer to your spouse or, or specifically to your wife, to, to the men. And that we should know how to acquire our wife in sanctification and honor. I think the majority of, of conservative theologians believe that the, 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 better, the better way to articulate this is that the word vessel is referring to your body. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7 and 1 Peter 3 verse 7, uh, the word, the same word is used to describe your body as, a, as an instrument or as an implement or as a tool. So I think the, the better understanding here and interpretation is that the word vessel here is your body that you should know how to possess or literally to control to bring it 
into subjection to have discipline in your body. So exhortation number two, number one, you need to say no. Number two, you need to have discipline. Discipline over your body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are the Lord's. And I think there's three applications here. First, we need to consider disciplining our eyes. Job 31 verse 1 says, Job said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I think upon a maid? Psalm 101 verse 3 says, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. So remember, fornication always starts with a look. And and that is important that we talk about that because pornography is a problem across the world today. It's an epidemic of incredible proportion. And, And as a matter of fact, there are many, even in this room, that are regularly struggling with what they're looking at. Men and women have this issue. There needs to be a discipline in our eyes. Secondly, there needs to be a discipline in our mind, which is also a part of our body. It is a part of our vessel. 2 Corinthians 10, 5 tells us we are to be bringing into into captivity every thought. And everything that goes into our eyes is going into our mind. And we need to to make sure that we are controlling the things that we are thinking about. There's discipline. There's self-control. We're possessing our body in sanctification and in honor. And then we need to discipline our body. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, Paul says he kept under his body. And he brought it into subjection. You allow God and the Spirit of God to control you, not your flesh, not your body. So this is is what he's saying, that we would possess our body in sanctification and in honor. I think sanctification is our relationship toward God and honor is our relationship towards others. And we need to be careful that we are disciplined with our body when it comes to moral purity. Radical commitment that demands discipline. Notice verse 5. It says, not in the lust of concupiscence, not in the passion of desire is the idea idea there. Out of control passions. Even as the Gentiles which know not God. Simple principle. If we're going to be committed to this, number three, you need to be different from the world. Different from the world. The Gentiles and the world... It's all about live it up. Do what you want with your own body. It's it's fine. And living together before marriage is fine today. Homosexuality is fine today. All kinds of corruption in the sexual area is, is okay today to many people in the world. And he's saying that's the way the Gentiles are. And they don't know God. Do you see how he brings it back to the relationship with God again? You need to be different from the world. And the scripture clearly shows us that this is, This is radically different from the world, and we should be. And then number four, he says in verse six that that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. This, This phrase literally means don't do anything that takes advantage of someone. Or to literally desire what what you do not have the right to in any sexual area, in any moral purity area. Do not transgress and go beyond and take advantage of other people. And I think the application is, is twofold here. And let me just say it this way. The fourth, the fourth principle is you need to honor each other. 
right? So number one, you need to say no. Number two, you need to have discipline. Number, number three, you need to be different from the world. Number four, you need to honor each other. And I think we need to be careful in these two areas. Number one, seductive behavior. This is when we use our looks or or our dress or any sort of verbal or nonverbal communication to attract attention in a sensual, selfish way. This is why modesty matters. This is why it's important for you to be careful. That's any sort of seductive behavior would be defrauding, would be taking advantage of someone else. And then secondly, abusive behavior. This is when you're using your power or your status or your position to take advantage of someone in a selfish or sensual way. And and the stories could be told, sadly, of so many who have actually used abusive behavior. We need to be careful that we are thinking about others and we are loving others and we are honoring one another and preferring one another. Romans 12, verse 10. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. And so this is the essence of the command. You need to say no. You need to have discipline. You need to be different from the world and you need to honor each other, as verse six says. So we've seen the motivation of the command. We've seen the essence of the command. So don't forget to say no. Cultivate a disciplined life. Be different from the world and show honor to each other. This is how we have this commitment, radical commitment to moral purity. Finally, let's talk about the implications of obedience to the purity principle. What happens if I obey or I disobey? Notice verse six, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, specifically in the, in the sensual, sexual area there, I believe is what he's talking about, because that, notice this, the Lord is the avenger. This is a word that literally means God will be the one who punishes you. And we know that the scripture is clear. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, and, and so forth. They shall not inherit the kingdom of God. God will punish. So you'll either be judged by God if you give in to moral impurity and you do live in fornication, You will be judged by God or you can be blessed by God if you have this type of radical commitment. It's your choice. Judged by God or blessed by God. That's serious implications. Serious implications. Secondly, you will be either unclean or holy. Number one, you'll be either either judged or blessed. Secondly, you'll either be unclean or holy. Notice, Verse seven, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. And it really, I think a good reference for this is 1 Peter chapter one, verses 15 and 16. For he, hath, who, he who has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. There may even be a tie back to the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery and all the expectations of the book of Leviticus considering our flesh and our, our sexual conduct. There's all kinds of expectations for the people of God. And, and as I said, we should be motivated by our relationship with God. We should seek to be holy instead of unclean. And I think there's also an application here for our reputation and our testimony. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. 
In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 32, the Bible says, But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroys his own soul. Verse 33 says, A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. God can forgive any sin. But there are sins that have certain consequences. And there are sins that label you. There are sins that destroy your testimony. And you can either be unclean or holy in the sight of God. Unclean and holy even in the sight of God's people. And it's important that we recognize there are serious implications to disobedience. There's a third implication. You'll either be disregarding or rejecting God or you can be empowered by the Holy Spirit. I think we see this in verse uh, verse 8. He therefore that despiseth, literally rejects this, he that therefore despiseth this is not despising man but God. You are like right in the face of God. You are rejecting God. And notice the end of the verse, it says, he's given us the Holy Spirit. I think that it's important that we acknowledge for you and for me that none of us can obey the, the purity principle without the help of the Holy Spirit. So you can either choose to reject God and do your own thing, or you can choose to be living, empowered by the Holy Spirit. As we wait for the coming of the Lord, we must have a radical commitment to moral purity. This is the first place that Paul goes in his section on exhortation. Very appropriate for us. Are you obeying this principle? Are you living in the will of God? Growing in Christ, disciplined, saying no, considering others, and so forth, as we've talked this morning. So the spirit that we should have is found in 1 Thessalonians 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 23. This is the spirit we ought to have. And the very God of peace sanctify you. This should be our prayer this morning. The very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray that your whole spirit spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is, this, is, this is what I'm saying to you this morning. We are God's people. And as we wait for the coming of the Lord, strengthened in hope of the revelation of Jesus Christ, as we wait for the coming of the Lord, there must be a radical commitment to moral purity. Maybe you need to check up on your commitment and your obedience to this clear text of Scripture. Would you bow your heads as we pray this morning? Just before I pray, take a few moments. Allow the Word of God to change you. Talk to God personally and privately about your commitment to the purity principle, radical commitment to this purity command. Lord, this morning I know there are many in this room 
who need to confess and forsake and move forward in their life with a radical commitment to moral purity. Lord, would you please arrest our attention? Would we take this exhortation in a very meaningful way? Well, thinking about our relationship with you and the ramifications of our obedience. And God, our future marriage and family, these young people, their future marriage and family may rest on their commitment, their testimony, their relationship with you. And Lord, I pray that if they need help, that they would reach out and get help. But they would realize they are a child of God. They, they need to have this radical commitment. Lord, there's no excuse. The world is so wicked. There's so much sensuality around us. But there's no excuse for us. We know in whom we have believed. We know who you are. I pray that we would confess and forsake and get back to where we need to be and help us to be obedient to this purity principle. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.